Once, wandering northward early in the summer of 1864, I came upon a ruined one-and-a-half-story farmhouse by the banks of a stream. The house itself, burnt out and long since emptied of all valuables, was practically roofless and so full of holes as to be useless as shelter against the elements. But behind it stood a greenhouse whose remaining glass shingles glittered gray-brown in the sunlight like river mud. Inside it I found only a faded red pots, mostly broken, a few still containing a rich, stinking black soil into which all vegetable matter in the structure had long ago disintegrated. Two-thirds of the panes had fallen from the roof and walls and lay on the floor in jumbled shards that crunched beneath my boots with each shifting of my weight. A scratching and clicking like those of a squirrel's claws against glass made me glance upward at the ceiling, through which I saw gazing placidly down at me the lovely, spectral face of a woman. Badly startled, I slipped and fell backwards against a potting table, which saved my hands being cut by the slivered glass on the floor. Leaning on it with my elbows, I looked timorously back up to find the transparent lady still staring at me, her wistful smile as faint and pretty as condensed breath on the pane, tendering grace and unearned absolution. It was a moment before I took, a, took note of her neighbor to the left, a seated man in a top hat, or the elderly couple to her right. As my brain digested this new information, the lady transformed before my eyes from ectoplasm to ambrotype, her fading emulsion struck by the sun's rays at the precise acute angle required to create the illusion of a positive image. The sheet was about 10 by 12 inches in size, and unusual in that the photographer had made a very close composition of the lady's head, his depth of focus so shallow that only her lips and eyes were sharp, her nose, ears, throat, and collar all softened into an indistinct haze. All the other shingles still in place proved to be discarded, backless ambrotypes also. And carefully picking up from the ground a sliver of a broken one as curved and sharp as a scimitar, I was able to distinguish a sloppily knotted cravat and the lapels of a coat cut in a manner no longer fashionable. I had no particular knowledge of photography then, but I knew the stories of battlefield photographers cutting window panes from their frames in abandoned houses for use as plates. This was, I suppose, the civilian householder's revenge on the vandalizing photographers, letting the sun slowly bake their hard work back into clear, unadorned glass sheets. I had early enter earlier entertained the notion of sleeping in the dilapidated house, but despite the lady's beauty and benevolent aspect, the idea of spending the night in a place that produced phantoms in daylight made me uneasy, and I continued on down the road. Scott Phillips is the author of the pulp noir novels The Ice Harvest and The Walkaway. His new novel is Cottonwood, a sprawling, sordid story set in Kansas in the post-Civil War era. Welcome to Fine Print, Scott. Thanks for having me. Scott Mystery comes in all sorts of shades. There's a spectrum that mm. might start on one end with the hardcore pulp, go to the noir, to the American detective story, to the drawing room, to the cozy. Mm -hmm. Where do you find yourself in that spectrum? Oh, I guess the noir. I, I like a lot of pulp writing, too. I like a lot of older pulp writing. Um, it's kind of a... It's sort of a disappearing art form, although there are people still practicing it on a different, in a, in a different way. I mean, there are people still publishing uh, a lot of books a year, a lot of paperback originals. Uh, but you know, it's not it's not like it was in the old days. But you know, Jim to Jim Thompsons and those guys, I like a lot. I, and I think probably that's about where I fall. Could you talk about the language 
that you use. It's very controlled and very specific, and I'm really interested in whether it just comes out of you naturally or whether you really work at it. Well, I work at it. Um, this this book sounds a lot different from the other two um, because it's set in the 19th century, and the narrator is a 19th century character. Um, and, of course, that changes the way... Uh, the way the character has to sound. I, I got a lot of his voice, to tell you the truth, from, from original 19th century documents. I avoided scrupulously reading um, modern-day pe- people who were doing the same things as I did with this book, uh, books like Charles Portis's True Grit and Thomas Berger's Little Big Man, because I didn't want to latch on to somebody else's approximation of a 19th century voice. I was afraid of doing that. Um but for this one, I, I think the one the one writer whose voice influenced me the most on this was a writer named Jack Black, who uh, published a book in the 20s called uh, You Can't Win, which is still in print. And I'm always telling people about it because it's one of the greatest books I've ever read. It's a, his memoir of, of being a burglar. When he wrote it, he was the librarian for the San Francisco Call. Uh, he had been, the, the publisher of that paper had sort of rescued him from jail and uh, given him a job. Uh, he was too old to be in jail, you know, and so he, 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 but he wrote this wonderful memoir of being a burglar and a sneak thief in, uh, in the 1880s and 90s. Um, and, and I loved the voice of that book so much that, uh, that I, I, I think I, I picked up a little bit of his, his tone. Tell us a little bit about Cottonwood, where it's coming from, because it's an interesting novel with a mystery that kind of rises up from the sediment of mm. the character's experience. Well, Cottonwood, uh, the, the crimes in Cottonwood are based on a, a, a real family of criminals called the, the Benders, uh, also known as the Hellbenders and the Bloody Benders. Um, they were a family, or they may not have been. Nobody really knows where they came from, uh, but it, it, it has long been assumed that they were a family. They posed as a family anyway. Um, there were two older, an, an older couple and a younger man and a younger woman, um, and they had a house out on the Kansas prairie. And uh, they all invited people to come and, and have meals with them and and pass through and and when when someone was local they would just you know feed them a meal and let them be on their way um if if the person traveling was was not known to them um they would invite them to spend the night and they would uh dispatch them with a hammer and uh, then slit their throats and they uh, buried about 15 people back in their orchard behind the house and it took about 3 years for them to be found out and when they were found out, they uh, they made their escape, and no one really knows if they escaped or not because there have long been stories. In fact, there were deathbed confessions in the twenties from from men who told their families that they had been on that posse and that they had caught the vendors and killed them and kept the money. So, uh, so I'd always been fascinated by that story, and I wanted to weave it into um, uh, a novel. I didn't want to do that as the whole basis of a novel. But I wanted to weave that into the story of a of a town in that period, the 1870s and, and 80s. Bill Ogden is a really fascinating character, and his life and his voice is so different from what you'd expect of somebody of that time period. And the story is entertainingly sordid. 
I wonder if you'd talk about the sordid aspects of this story. Well, you know, if you go back through, you know, and, and read Western history, there's a lot of ribald stuff back then, and there's a lot of sordid stuff there. You know, you read uh, you read old newspapers, and uh, you know, the Wild West was wild in more ways than one. Um, particularly in these boom towns. I mean, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of people. Uh, a lot of men and very few women, and the women who did come very often came as as prostitutes. And um, you know, it was it was a wild and woolly place. And and you know, reading these original stories, reading going back and reading people's firsthand accounts and reading old newspapers, um, you know, there's a lot that that you don't get in old Western movies and in most Western novels. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, I t- keep telling people that one of my goals with this book was to show people that the Old West wasn't just violence. There was a lot of sex, too. Uh, one thing I found really fascinating in your book is so many Westerns and our impression of so many Westerns involves a lot of nobility and moral strength. In this book, Nobility is a very short supply. Yeah. I, well, yeah. you'd have to spot it with a microscope or a magnifying glass. Well, another thing about the Old West, I think that's you can you can find looking at the historical record is that really what people were mostly out there for, and and they weren't bad people, but they were they were mostly out there trying to earn a living. I mean, I think people went out there because they thought there was a better living to be made than there was back east or, you know, back in Germany or wherever they were from. Um, and uh, so the issue of nobility, um, you know, it does does come up in the course of storytelling, but I think in, in reality, um, you know, there's the old question I, I, I've always found interesting about Wyatt Earp. People, people, there's this controversy among Western buffs about whether Wyatt Earp was this, you know, fascist who represented the federal government and, you know, the sort of the equivalent of the guy in the black helicopter today, um, or or whether he was this noble knight, you know, bringing law and order to the Old West. And I think that there's an element of truth in both of those. And But I think really what Wyatt Earp was was a guy who came out West to make money. Wider, you know, for example, uh, he, he, in Tombstone, Arizona, owned uh, a casino, and he owned a silver mine, and he wanted people to come out to Tombstone and live, and the fact that people were jumping claims and uh, rustling cattle made it hard to attract people, and therefore made it hard for him to earn a living, and I think that was the, the motivation of a lot of people in the Old West. They were they were out there trying to make a living, and, and woe unto anybody who stood in their way. <laughs> The economics of cottonwood are pretty fascinating. There's a a big time scam going that starts the whole town. Right. The, this guy arrives from Chicago and says, "Well, there's a cattle trail that's going to come through here. You know, the railroad is coming already. They know that." But this guy comes and says, "Well, the reason the railroad is coming is because there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be a cattle depot. I'm going to open. You know, I'm going to. There's going to be. A, we're going to open this. This. Uh, these. We're going to start these cattle pens, and we're going to." This trail is going to come up here from Texas. Well, it's nonsense. He, he's really trying to do this, but it's not going to work because it's way too far east for a, for a, for a, a cattle trail to make any sense, to, you know. And uh, so, but everybody, 
nobody sees that. Everybody just sees the dollar signs floating in the air. And so they go nuts and all these people start arriving, construction crews, and money starts pouring in. Real money starts pouring in because people see this um, this starting to happen. And, and part of this was inspired by the fact that my wife uh, worked for a dot-com. And, <laughs> and one morning we, uh, we went from being sort of uh, rich on paper to uh, the company not even existing. And uh, I thought, you know, there's an analogy here to what happened in a lot of little towns back in the Old West. You know, there were these bubbles that, you know, popped up and, you know, they have these really rich little towns. And then suddenly, bam, you know, somebody would open up another cattle depot or uh, the mine would, you know, the vein would tap out. And suddenly the town was just, uh, you know, two old drunks and uh, and and the mayor and... Uh, so I, I thought that would be kind of an interesting thing to play with in a in a book. Could you tell us a little bit about the pettiness of your characters in this and your other novels? We can talk about Cottonwood first, mm-hmm. but talk about how petty these people are. They're they're very uh, self involved. Well, people, yeah, people are though. I think <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. are. They are. Well, they're not all. They're not all terribly petty, but they're yeah. They're they're all they're all. Uh, they all have their own self-interest at, at heart, and they tend to be looking out for their own their own uh, their own welfare first and foremost. And they come at you know they they end up at cross purposes with each other, and that to me is uh, that leads to drama and and comedy also because you know these people are often just arguing about you know about very minor trivial stupid things and that's uh i i happen to find that funny so uh except when it turns violent well you uh, do have a great sense of humor and that's one of the other things i thought distinguished cottonwood is it's very funny and it has a there's a constant uh feeling of humor bubbling through it it doesn't take itself seriously although it does give you a feeling that you're really getting a accurate picture of this era well i i like to think of it as sort of whistling through the graveyard in a way, uh, I I I like a yeah, I like a book to be funny. Uh, I think that's one of the one of the things. Uh, I, I had Jim Burke, James Lee Burke, as a uh, creative writing teacher twenty uh, some years ago in which at Wichita State, and uh, one of the things he told me that really stuck with me is he said, you know, being funny is a good because I was writing funny light stuff at the time, and he said, he said, you know, being funny is a great tool. Uh, you don't want it to be all you're doing necessarily, but you know, getting a reader to laugh is a great way to hook them, and you know you can get your other stuff in under the radar when you're when you're when you got the reader laughing. One other aspect, of course, and this works through, again through all your work, is a kind of hardcore open sexuality, but it's mm. not sensuous. It's Kind of <laughs> ugly. <laughs> well, I don't think it's ugly. It's uh, oh, I don't think of it that way anyway. Um, it's just they're they're fairly matter of fact. Um, I there's this thing that they give in England called the Bad Sex Award, and it's for the worst description of the sexual act in a novel. And uh, and you read them and they're and they're from good. Oftentimes they're from very good books, but these people write try to write very often. I think good writers get sidetracked by trying to write very lyrical descriptions of sex. And um, so in in my descriptions of sex, I try to be a, a little bit mechanical. And 
in this case, there's a there is a love story in this book, and there was a love story in my last book too that I think is a you know the heart of the book. I think, in fact, my last book, uh, the Walkaway, really is a love story. It's about this man who walks away from a nursing home, and all he wants to do is get back with his wife. I mean, that's the core of the book to me is that this guy has been you know in love with this woman for fifty years, and um, so you know there is love in in these books, but uh, when it's the kind of sex that one would want to be lyrical about. I just, I just don't have the characters talk about it, um, because I don't think people really talk about that kind of sex. People tend to talk about. Um, ca- I think people talk more graphically about casual sex than they do about sex that means something to them. Uh, and when you're trying to describe something as sublime as uh, sex with someone that you love, it's it's really hard to do. But whereas you're talking about, for example, in, in Cottonwood, there are several sexual encounters with, uh, he has a sexual encounter with his landlady, um, and that's pretty graphically described. And, uh, you know, they're friends and they're having, you know, an, a sexual encounter. And, um, but it doesn't mean that much to either one of them. And, uh, Whereas this woman that he loves, Maggie, who uh, at that point in the book he has lost and has gone away, um, he never describes sex with her. He describes going up the stairs with her, uh, and he describes the feeling he has afterward. But he, he, he I don't think, I, I just don't feel like the character would ever discuss it. No, oh, that's very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about your first book, The Ice Harvest. Okay. It's and interesting to me, it struck me as very much a pulp novel. In that was my intention, yeah. And, and it's very fun. I, I think that the the publisher missed a great opportunity to put, have a girl on a pole on the front cover. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the publishers did that overseas. There were things like that. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, well, some pretty graphic stuff overseas. Um, the the feel of that novel. It's twenty four hours with the worst version of a trial lawyer that you could ever imagine. <laughs> Very sleazy lawyer. The worst kind. Yeah. Could you talk about the the contrast between his experience and when the novel takes place, which is Christmas Eve? Well, it, it comes from um, a few Christmases I had when I was uh, a little alienated and alone and, you know, and uh, I, I lived in France for a long time and at, uh, at Christmas time I tended to feel sort of uh, excluded because I wasn't, didn't have family over there and I didn't have, you know, and I, 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 you know, it seemed like Christmas was sort of happening without me. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. I thought this was, this would be an interesting thing to do with a guy in his own hometown, somebody who has so alienated everybody who loves him that uh, Christmas for him is something that he sees happening all around him, but something he's not participating in. Um, and I, I liked, I liked the idea of, uh, of him sort of wandering around and experiencing this, this holiday that everybody else is just obsessed with. And you can't get away from the, the, the songs and the, uh, the tinsel and, but, but it's still something he's not really, he's, he's at arm's length from it. The language in this novel is simple and the 
plot is very straightforward. It it is just a twenty four hour slice. Right. Uh, could you talk about how you came up up with that? And also the set the time setting too is fairly fascinating. Nineteen seventy nine. What made you pick that time period? Well, it was a time that I knew. Uh, I was about let's see. I guess I was eighteen years old in nineteen seventy nine. And I, I, I had a pretty good sense of what 1979 felt like, you know, and I remembered that, that year pretty well. Also, uh, I didn't want it to be too modern. For one thing, because the strip clubs had changed. Um, you know, I, I used to go to these clubs with a friend of mine named, named Ben Urish, who is, uh, who is now one of the world's leading authorities on burlesque. And he teaches at uh, University of Michigan. And uh, he uh, he used to take me. He used to drag me to these places, actually. And, uh-huh. You know, and uh, he'd say, "Well, we got to go to the Forty Nine and Go Go because the county's going to be shutting all these places down next week." You know, and and they never did. But you know, we would go out, and um, and they were very dingy, sleazy, poorly lit places. And uh, and I think that uh, that just all changed later on. I think that that all got very it, it got a little slicker i mean even in kind of cheap places they had to get a little slicker and a little nicer because there was so much competition from above um and i wanted to um i wanted to maintain that sense of just cut rate sleaze like the kind of place you could just open up in a you know an empty storefront you know and just put a table in there and have somebody dance um one thing i really liked about this novel um was the language, in particular, the creative cursing. Now, we can't read a lot of this <laughs> right, on no. the radio, but we can talk about I used it. all of the seven words. Yes. Plus we, some. We, yeah, you made a few up. <laughs> um, could you talk about the creative deployment of expletives, how you do that, and how it plays into the humor of this novel? Well, I, I have, uh, I've had a lot of criticism, mostly from friends of my mother's, uh, about my use of language, I I love to hear people curse in a creative way, um, and particularly I think there's a there's a, a whole school of of uh, profanity that is sort of disappearing because it's becoming so much a part of everyday discourse. Um, I I just I love I love the way. Uh, People used to talk, and you know, I, I'll occasionally hear some really obscure obs- expression, and I'll write it down. You know, I'll hear somebody talking, and um, you know, I'll write something down. Generally, from older people, uh, I don't think too many people talk like that anymore. But uh, I really, I really love that, and uh, I, I don't use it um, indiscriminately. In fact, I find myself cutting a lot of it because I don't like. Um, you know, I don't like it to feel like it's just people spewing out uh, obscenities because they, you know, it's just they don't know any other words. But uh, you know, when somebody's really mad or when somebody's expressing contempt, I think there's nothing like a good epithet. I'm wondering if you could talk about plot. The plot of the Ice Harvest is linear, and mm-hmm. the plot of Cottonwood and the plot of the Walkaway are—they're both layered. Mm. Well, part of that is because Ice Harvest is a very simply structured book. It's, as you say, it's 24 hours in the, or a little bit less than 24 hours in the life of uh, uh, this lawyer. 
And he's trying to get out of town, and there's some money that he needs to get a hold of before he goes out of town. And um, he's not sure really who his friends are anymore. And that's basically, you know, in a nutshell, that's the plot. And I, I like that kind of plot. I like that kind of simple um, simple story. Um, the walk away got real complicated. Uh, in fact, to the point where some people didn't like the book because they thought it was too complicated. Um, it, it had a story that was set in 1952 and a story that was set in 1989. And the stories were intertwined and interrelated. It was based on a true, part of it was based on a true story um, from Wichita. Uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, there were these sex lotteries at, at the aircraft plants. Sex lotteries? Sex lotteries, yes. And what um, did you win in a sex lottery? Well, what you won was a weekend in a cabin with all the steak you could eat, all the whiskey you could drink, and the company of the two women who ran the raffle. Uh, <laughs> really? And yeah, they were operating it on the shop floor, apparently, at, uh, at, at, at least one, and I think three of the aircraft plants. Uh, and it was exposed by the Wichita Beacon, uh, by this wonderful uh, reporter named Ernie Warden, who was just a real interesting character. Um, and I found that story so fascinating that I wanted to, uh, I always wanted to put it in a book. And so I, I, but that gets layered in, and that happens in the 50s, and it reverberates into the, the late 80s. And um, so, and, and the, the, the basic, stimulus of the plot is this old man Gunther this policeman walks away from a nursing home and he's he's uh he has a form of senile dementia he his memory is imperfect he he remembers the the distant past very well but the more recent past is a little vaguer for him and he's wandering away looking for this money that he hid a long time ago um so that his wife can move into the nursing home with him. And what he doesn't realize is that his wife has spent all that money keeping him in the nursing home. So uh, so it's a very complicated book, and uh, I think I juggle those stories pretty well, but, but it, is, it is a more complicated plot than I, would, than I would want to work with again, I think. Cottonwood is—I see, I think, I see Cottonwood as being fairly simple— uh, he falls in love. The Bill, the narrator, falls in love with this woman who's come to town. He goes into business with the woman's husband. Um, the bloody benders are found out. Their crimes are discovered, and Bill ends up having to leave town for a while. And uh, some years later, he returns. And uh, and to me, that I guess it just seems simple to me compared to the last one. <laughs> I had a lot less juggling to do. Now, all three of your novels are connected, aren't they? Yeah, they're all connected in strange ways, yeah. And the, and the one I'm working on now is connected to all of them, too. That was so. my next question. Could you tell us a little bit about it and when we can expect it? Well, I think it'll be uh, about a year and a half, probably, uh, maybe a little more. It's a, um, it's a story set in the Depression, 1930s. And it's set partially in Hollywood and partially in Cottonwood. 
and uh, its uh, main character is uh, Bill Ogden's grandson, who is uh, an alligator wrestler. Okay. Wow, that sounds quite fun. Now, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the people in the mystery business, because some of the people I know you work with and some oh, of your publishers. Awful. They're awful people. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about uh, this? Uh, your publisher, Dennis McMillan? Well, Dennis, um, yeah, Dennis came to me a couple of, about four years ago. I was I, I had finished this book, and Dennis wanted to bring out a uh, a small edition of the Ice Harvest, and I didn't have a publisher at that time, and so I said, "Yeah, sure." And uh, so he started spreading the word, and before long, I had an offer from New York, and but it was incumbent on Dennis not doing his edition. And I called Dennis up and I said, "Well, look, you know, I'll." I'll I'll, I'm not going to Welsh on our deal, but I just wanted you to know I have this this deal in New York, which was basically thanks to Dennis. And uh, Dennis said, well, that's all right. I'll tell you what. Just give me a small portion of the uh, advance, and we'll call it even. So Ballantyne brought the book out, but Dennis brought out a beautiful limited edition, which is uh, just a gorgeous book. Uh, designed by Michael Kellner, who I think is probably the best book designer in America, along with Chip Kidd. I mean, he's really, really brilliant. And he's done all three. He's done limiteds of all three of my books. Dennis has with Michael doing the designing. So, Now, are you here for Left Coast Crime? I am here for Left Coast Crime. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that conference. Well, it's a conference of uh, crime writers and readers and uh, other professionals, editors and agents, etc., uh, Walter Mosley this year is the guest of honor, and um, I forget who else is coming. I know David Corbett from, from the Bay Area. You have David Corbett and Eddie Muller uh, are both going to be there. Kent Harrington and uh, a friend of ours from uh, from New York, Chris Niles, who's a very wonderful um, crime writer. And uh, I don't know who else is going to be there. Barry Eisler, I think. Now, one question, you know, I wanted to get back to was the idea of your fiction. Even though you write in the noir and the pulp uh, idiom, your work also seems to be very firmly historical fiction. Yes, sometimes it is. Um, I discovered when I was writing uh, The Walk Away that I liked doing historical research. It it started with when I I started, when I realized I was going to set part of it in the 50s, I started doing research for, well, how much did a Plymouth cost, a used Plymouth, because um, I had this guy buying a car, and I started doing other things. I started getting old newspapers and classified ads, and uh, a friend of mine named Jerry K. Smith, who works at the Wichita Eagle, uh, and uh, you know would send me uh, old classified ads from that period, and... Uh, so when I started doing this one, the, you know, as a, as a Western, I started doing a lot of historical research, and I found that I really, really liked it. Um, in fact, the, the research kind of got in the way of the writing a little bit because I really was more interested in going to the library and finding more stuff. And, you know, things like I would – I had him coming back to Kansas from, from San Francisco by train, and so I, I had to find out – I had to find out the train schedules, and I had to find out, you know, what the – trained cars were like and did all this, you know, typical kind of research. And I probably spent two weeks on it and I probably bought $150 worth of books about trains. And then in the end, I cut it all out 
because you know he's just I didn't need you know who cares if he's on the he's on the train we know he came by train so I just had him arriving you know and uh, but you know that stuff is fun to do and it, uh, and I think the book is still better for it somehow even though that stuff's not in there uh, I think there's just a sense that uh, it really helps you're not in winging the, it you know? yeah it helps in the world creation you you really yeah. create the world and and I think readers. I sense the stuff in the background. Yeah. Well, Jim Crumley once said, and this is one of the best things I ever heard about writing character, he said, you should always know what your character's grandparents did for a living. You don't need to put it in the book, but you should know. And and I really think that helps. There's a lot of stuff that you end up using, and you, you may end up mentioning something like that or you may not, but it's good to, it's good to have it in the back of your mind. It, it keeps the characters consistent, I think. Tell us a little bit about how you started writing. I started writing uh, when I was a kid. I started writing, um, you know, just silly stuff, uh, Twilight Zone kind of stories. And um, and I always had good, I have to say, I, I, I had a few bad teachers in my day, but I never, ever had a bad English teacher. I always had good English teachers, and they always encouraged me, you know, two a one. They all, all encouraged me to keep writing. And um, so I wrote as an adult, even when I wasn't, you know, even trying to make a living at it. And, uh, you know, I just kept it up, and I always took it seriously. And, and Jim Burke, as I mentioned, was my one of my—I uh, had freshman comp, in fact, from Jim Burke, in wow. addition to creative writing. And he always— you know, he took he takes it very very seriously, and and that was something he passed on to me. I think he 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 he, he treats it as a vocation, and uh, so I you know I kept doing it. I, I didn't know that I would ever you know be writing novels for 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 my living, but I always you know I always took it seriously enough that I I think it improved my work because I I didn't allow myself to slack. When you're writing in this genre that you write in, and in general, in the in the world of historical fiction, there's always a lot of interest in movies. Have have your books been sold as movies? Or well, the first one has. Hmm. Um, the first one, uh, Focus, which is a division of Universal, has the rights to, and uh, I don't really know what is happening with that right now. Um, it's things change about every five minutes, so uh, I hope someday they will make it. Um, and Cottonwood, unfortunately, um, has so many characters in it from the Ice Harvest that it's considered a sequel, even though I don't think of it as a sequel. Um, but it's got so many characters from it that it's considered a sequel, so I can't sell it to anybody but uh, Universal Focus. So, um, So nothing happened with that. Uh, it's also sort of unfilmable, I think. You mean... Uh- you said Cottonwood. Oh, so not Cottonwood. Sorry, The Walkaway. The Walkaway is what I meant. Right. Um, and it's it's sort of uh, I think it's sort of unfilmable. And Cottonwood is right now being read by various different people to see if anybody wants to to make it. So I don't know. Uh, it's it's hard to say. I mean, they're they're hard they're hard things to do. Um, Ice Harvest is an easy one. Right. And, it's so straight so straightforward. Yeah. And and The Walkaway is impossible. And I think Cottonwood is is. Slightly less impossible, I hope. So your approach to Hollywood is of the 
go to the California border, throw that's it across, and wait old, for the sack of money? The old Hemingway thing. Yeah, exactly. That's that's it. Although I've had a good, a good experience with the movies, I have to say. When I, I, I wrote a movie, in fact, a few years ago, which was um, such a, a frustrating experience that I ended up writing uh, Ice Harvest. I hadn't written any fiction in a while, and I'd written some screenplays, and I wrote one that uh, got made, and... Um, you know, it wasn't my story. There was nothing wrong with it. It was just, it wasn't my story, and it wasn't, you know, I, I worked on it with a wonderful novelist named uh, Dave Maisel, M-A-S-I-E-L, who wrote a great book called 2182 Kilohertz. And that was the movie was called? No, the movie was called, that was, that's just Dave's, uh, no, I'm giving Dave a plug there. Uh, the The movie was called Crosscut, and we, we were given the story, and we wrote it with the director, uh, a man named Paul Raimondi, and you know it just wasn't my thing it wasn't so afterward i was i thought i'm just going to write something for my own amusement but uh ice harvest has been a very good experience uh, in in terms of movies because uh, it was adapted by richard russo and robert benton um and it's a terrific script it's very good it's very very faithful to the book um probably more faithful to the book than i would have been you know if i'd adapted it uh and uh you know, so we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. We've been speaking with Scott Phillips. His latest novel is Cottonwood. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me.